0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me uh, to the book of 1 John. We'll be looking at uh, John's letter, continuing in our study there. So this morning we're going to be in 1 John uh, chapter 2, and we're going to look particularly at verses 18 through 27. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of the two purposes for which John wrote this letter. Uh, those two purposes will be very, very clear and very, very plain in our text this morning. Uh, first he wrote this letter uh, to refute these false teachers that were traveling, traveling around the area of Ephesus uh, spreading a false gospel and a false teaching. And so uh, one of John's purposes is to refute those false teachers, but then also, and probably the main purpose uh, of the letter that John is writing here is he's writing this letter to encourage and to build up the true believers who have remained steadfast in the church and to warn them of these false teachers uh, but to build them up and to encourage them in the truth as well. And so uh, we'll see those two purposes very plainly uh, in our text this morning. And so if you're there, I'd like to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me one more time in the honor of reading God's holy and inspired and inerrant Word. <clears> 1 <throat> John chapter 2, verses 18-27. through 27. It says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. So I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and there is no lie, just as it was taught to you, abide in Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these next few moments as we look to Your Word, as we study it. Father, I pray that Your Spirit uh, would be at work in our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are willing to obey. pray these things in Your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there once was a king named Josiah. Josiah, he was a young teenage king uh, who was very faithful to the Lord. And actually, Josiah brought a, a slight glimmer of hope among a string of evil and wicked kings that had been ruling over the nation of Israel. You can read about Josiah and his life and everything that he did in the book of Second Kings. Uh, but several of the things that Josiah did, a particular note, one, he tore down altars that were built up all around Judah uh, that were built to false gods. Uh, Josiah also went into the temple and brought out the scrolls of the law and read them out loud in public for the first time in in generations. It seemed that for a while, under Josiah's rule, that maybe, just maybe, true reformation and revival had taken place in Judah. Josiah died in battle. He was fighting against the Egyptians. He was fighting against Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh of the time uh, killed Josiah, And Josiah's son, Jehoiahaz, took over as king. Now Jehoiahaz only lasted for about three months before he was removed from his throne by the very same Pharaoh that had slayed his father. And his younger brother, Jehoiakim, was put on the throne by the Egyptian Pharaoh in his place. Now Jehoiakim was just a puppet king of Pharaoh. And the Scripture says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. All of the reform and the revival brought about by Josiah and the great, that great king seemed to fall by the wayside. And all the while, while this was taking place, there was another king who lived during that time. A king from Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had his eyes set on Jerusalem to take it over. It was during this time that a young man named Jeremiah was called by God to prophesy to his people. The words that God gave to Jeremiah were very bleak. As a matter of fact, you guys have probably uh, learned in Sunday school and studying the Old Testament that Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was known as the weeping prophet because his his message to uh, the Judeans, the Israelites, was very, very bleak. He was warning them that they had forsaken God and because of their rebellion against God and against His law, and they're chasing after these false gods, that sure judgment was coming. There was nothing that they could do to stop it. Israel had forsaken God, and Babylon was on the march to come and to take them over. The situation seemed absolutely hopeless. But in the midst of all of this darkness and in the midst of this hard prophecy, Jeremiah prophesied about a day that was to come day in which God was going to make a new covenant with His people. Listen to Jeremiah 31, several verses here. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Fast forward now to First John. Jesus has come. He's lived. He's died. He's risen again. Sin has been atoned for. The Holy Spirit has come and has anointed the church at Pentecost. The message of the gospel has spread throughout the ends of the known world. And they're meeting to figure out how they can take it even further. Jeremiah's prophecy all those years ago seems to finally be realized but it doesn't come without its difficulty. These false teachers have risen up from within the church. These antichrists, John calls them. The Apostle John says to them, it's the last hour. And now many antichrists have come, so don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by them. Well, our text this morning may seem a little bit convoluted. And as I, as I read it this morning, maybe you, you kind of sense that. John seems to be bouncing all over the place uh, in these few verses. But really, this text has a whole lot to teach us about the day and age in which we live. There, are, there is no shortage of teaching about God out there today. There is no shortage of spiritual teaching in our world. You just have to turn on the TV. Or flip on the radio. And there are people, there are preachers and teachers on TV and on the radio. You, you can go to bookstores, entire warehouse-sized bookstores that are chock-full, floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall with books from all different types of authors that have to do with different things about God and His Word. You can download podcasts and sermons online and listen to them at any point in time of the day. There is no shortage of teachings about God in our world today. And, and those things are really easily accessible as well. The church family, this passage warns us this morning. There's a warning in this passage that we need to be discerning because even though there's a lot of teaching out there, at best, some of that teaching is bad teaching. But at worst, a lot of that teaching is is completely false teaching. And so as Christians this morning, we are called, and and John is teaching us, that in the midst of all of this teaching, and in the midst of of, of all of the easily accessible things that people have to say about God and who He is, we need to be careful to not be deceived. But we need to persevere in the true gospel that we heard from the beginning of our faith. So that's the main idea of our passage this morning. You look in your notes there. Uh, the main idea of the passage uh, is that this is the last hour. It's the last hour, so don't be deceived, rather persevere in the truth of the gospel. It's what John's calling us to this morning. I want to tease that out in two different points this morning. You've got two different points. The first point is this. There's a warning against those with false faith. So John is warning us uh, against those with false faith. Here's what they look like. They deceive, they deny, and they depart. They deceive, they deny, and they depart. Where do we get this? Well, John begins uh, this section of Scripture by saying that it's the last hour. It's the last hour. Now, for many years in the church, you know, there's been a lot of teaching on the end times, and, and end times teaching, last hour teaching, is typically in a lot of churches, it's stuff that people in the church are really, really fascinated with, but it's something that a lot of pastors and teachers really dread. Because it's so confusing, it can be so confusing and so convoluted. Uh, And so, uh, you know, and there's a lot of misteaching about that stuff out there. Right, there's no shortage of opinions and ideas about what eschatology is and end times stuff is and what it means. Um, But I think a lot of that conversation can be less than biblical. Um, It can be less than biblical and it can be a lot more fictitious. And so, for example, the Left Behind series. You guys know those books, the Left Behind series. They didn't really do a whole lot to help uh, with this confusion. And no offense to those of you who perhaps have read those books and really like them. Uh, I think they're fine to read. They're fine entertainment. But just a heads up, they're fiction novels. (laughs) They're fiction novels. They're not scripture. And they're not meant to be taken as scripture. And if you take them as scripture, it's going to lead to a lot of confusion. I can remember growing up hearing a lot of teaching about end time stuff, pastors, pastors, uh, who, who basically only taught. They built their ministries around this end times teaching. And I remember charts and I remember graphs and I remember a lot of scare tactics. I remember one preacher uh, at a revival service that I was at that said he believed that the second coming was so close that he woke up every morning and put on his rapture shoes and began to jump up and down. And I was like, what in the heck are rapture shoes? Are they wingtips? Get it? That's the best I got this morning, guys. (laughs) Wingtips, I'll fly away, rapture, okay, yeah, that's the best. I. It just goes downhill from there, guys, I'm sorry. Yeah, but what are raptures? You see what I mean by there's just a lot of confusion and a lot of, you know, a lot of opinions. So what is John talking about here when he says that it's the last hour? What does he mean by all of this? What do Luke and Peter and Paul mean when they speak of the last days, of the end times? And how does all of this square with Jesus teaching from Matthew chapter 24 that nobody knows the hour, not even the angels of heaven? How do we square John here saying it's the last hour and Jesus saying nobody knows when the hour is? How do we, how do we square all of that? Well, <clears throat> I think it's important to understand what the New Testament writers and what John is doing here is he's not predicting when he thinks Jesus will come. When John says here that it's the last hour, he's not saying that Jesus is going to come the next hour. You know, right now it's 11.30, Jesus is going to be back by 12.30. That's not what John is saying. He's not making a prediction about when the second coming will be. But what he's doing is he's talking about a moment in historical redemptive history. So we are in the last days, the last time, in the sense that all of the prophecies from the Old Testament about the coming Messiah have been fulfilled. Jeremiah 31, that promise of the new covenant in which the law of God is going to be written on the people's hearts. And they're no longer going to need teachers to say, know the Lord, because everybody's going to know Him from the least of them to the greatest of them. It's fulfilled. Jesus has come. He's lived. He's died. He's risen again. Sin has been atoned for In this epoch, this time in which uh, we are living, from the resurrection of Jesus until His second coming and the final judgment, the new uh, the New Testament writers in John here calls that time period that nobody knows how long it's going to be the last hour or the last days or the end times, right? So he's not making a prediction about when Jesus is coming; he's talking about a historical moment in redemptive history that spans from Jesus' resurrection until His second coming. That's what John's talking about. That's what the New Testament writers, when it talks about us being in the last days, uh, that's what they're talking about. So you can say to me, Nick, do you believe we're in the last days? Yes. And we have been since Jesus got up from the grave. (laughs) We've been in the last days for uh, a little over 2,000 years now. And who knows how long it'll extend. Jesus could come tomorrow. We don't know. But he's talking here about a moment in redemptive history. And it's the same moment that the readers of 1 John are in. It's it's the same moment that we're in, in, in the history of the world. So, how do we know? How does John know that we're in the last hour? Well, he says here that the primary marker that we're living in the last hour is that many antichrists have come. Now again, there's a lot of confusion here about who the Antichrist is and what that means. And, um, and we don't want to read a lot of that confusion into our text. We want to make sure that we're taking this text uh, by what it's saying and not by everything that we know from, from novels and, and different things like that. Now, we don't have time this morning to talk about in the survey, the Scriptures, about whether this Antichrist is, is a particular historical figure that is going to come one day in the future uh, or and how that relates to these antichrists and, and how that relates to other passages in the Scripture like the lawless one from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and, and the beast from Revelation chapter 12-13 and 13, and how all that stuff relates together. Uh, there's a lot there that uh, I'll leave you guys to, to dig into and to study. Now, <clears throat> I think here, suffice it to say, that when John is talking about the antichrists here, he's talking about people who deny Jesus. Okay? There are people who are literally anti. They are opposed to Christ. They're opposed to Jesus. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I do think that there is a figure who will come one day and who will have a particular role in redemptive history who will be known as the Antichrist. And I think it's really dangerous for us to try to figure out who that is and try to assign that label to different historical figures and those kinds of things. Uh, but I think our primary concern ought to be for these small, these little antichrists that are denying Jesus. That's, that's certainly John's concern uh, in this passage. So who are these people? Who are these little antichrists? And how do we know uh, who they are? Well, John gives us three different uh, characteristics that each one of them have. First, they deceive. They're deceivers. Okay. Look down at verse 26. We're going to bounce all over this passage, but I want us to see these con- the contrast here. All right, so they're deceivers. Down in verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Okay, So this group of false Christians or anti-Christians are out to deceive those to whom John is writing. They are deceiving them with false teachings about Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, we must be. God has called us to be equipped and discerning when it comes to people's teaching, as I said before, there are many teachers out there who will say a lot of good things, and they'll say them passionately, and they'll say them articulately or eloquently. Most of them will be very entertaining; will right? be very entertaining, and they may even say some things that are true. But if they deny that Jesus is the Son of God, come to live and die and rise again so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. If they deny that Jesus is the Messiah, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're wolves. And we need to watch out for them. There are teachers who are very popular today who will teach you things like Jesus wants you to be happy. Jesus wants you to be healthy. Jesus wants you to be wealthy and wise. But they say nothing about sin. They say nothing about repentance. They say nothing about faith or trial or hardship or perseverance or any of these things. Watch out for these people because they're being used by the enemy who is the ultimate deceiver. So we see that they're deceivers. Their intent is to deceive Secondly, we see that they are deniers. They deny. Now what in particular do they deny? Or the better question is, who in particular do they deny? We'll look down at verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So these antichrists are literally denying that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. And John is very concerned for his church, for his flock, that they not be deceived by these false teachers who are denying the most basic doctrine of what it means to be a Christian. Now today there are a lot of groups who will claim the banner of Christianity, who will say that they are Christians, but they deny who Jesus is. You know, most particularly we, go to, we think of folks like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, right? They, they will claim the banner of Christianity, but they deny that Jesus is the eternal Son of God begotten by the Father who came to live and die and rise again for our salvation. But I think there is a more internal test here that we need to perform on ourselves as well. Who do you say that Jesus is? a question that Jesus asked his own disciples. He said, who do people say that I am? But then he turned to his disciples and say, okay, who do you say that I am? Well, church family, who do you say that Jesus is? Why are you here this morning? <laughs> Why are you a member of this church? Is it because your daddy and your granddaddy and your great granddaddy were all members of the church and so it's just part of your family identity? that you are a Christian? When did you become a Christian? Is your testimony, well, I've just kind of always been one. Well, really? There was no moment or point in time in which you understood the gospel and repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus and and confessed Him as Lord over your life. You've just always kind of been that way. Who do you say that Jesus is? What's your motivation for all of this? Why are you here? and what, what is it that's encouraging you to be a part of this congregation? It's a good question that we need to ask ourselves to examine our own hearts to make sure to make sure that we know who Jesus is that we believe right things about who he is and what he has done for us. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, well, Jesus was a great guy. I believe He was a historical figure. I think He was a great teacher, right? He set a really good example for us to follow. He, he, you know, he, he set a good example for us and how we're supposed to care for the poor and, and how we're supposed to care for those who are, uh, on the, who are outcasts, who are on the, the peripheral of our societies. Is that all He is? Just some great teacher that lived a long time ago? There are a lot of great teachers who lived a long time ago. What makes Jesus any different? What makes Him more special? Perhaps you claim that you're a Christian, but you deny Jesus with your lifestyle. Maybe you say that you love Him. Maybe you say that you follow Him, and yet you habitually disobey Him. Without remorse, without repentance, you walk in darkness and you feel no need for repentance. John talks about that Earlier, we've, we've already seen what John has to say about that. It's just another form of denying Jesus. It's another form of denying who he is. So I think we need to look at ourselves as well. And we put, need to put our own heart and we need to put our own faith to this truth test of who we say that Jesus is. So we see that they were deceivers, we see that they were deniers, but they're also ultimately they're, they departed. They departed from the church. Ultimately, these antichrists removed themselves from the fellowship of the church, and I think it's really interesting here that these antichrists weren't some random strangers uh, that the Christians maybe heard about but had never actually met. No, these are people that were a part of their body. They they were a part of their visible church. I'm pretty sure that some of the readers of this letter, some of the original readers of this letter, were probably, when they were reading these words from the Apostle John, they were probably able to assign names and faces. I remember Billy Bob, you know, Joe Smith Jr., right? He confessed that he was a Christian. And, 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 and he said that he believed in God. He even walked an aisle and signed a card and he was baptized. And he's, he's been a member and his dad was a member and his granddad was a member. But then he, he got into this kind of strange teaching and he started dabbling in this stuff that was a little bit different and he started pulling away from the fellowship until ultimately, you know, we, we really hadn't seen him in a couple of years. They were probably able to assign names and faces to these people. They weren't strangers that they'd never heard of. This wasn't some hypothetical what-if kind of situation that John is addressing. These people were once a part of the body. And what happened? Their true colors were revealed. The genuineness of their faith was revealed. They departed because they had never truly been united to Jesus through spirit-empowered faith. Now, the warning here for us is crystal clear. There are those who can be a part of the body of Christ and be confessing and really believe that they believe in God. Yet, they will be led astray by false teachings and they will leave our fellowship and live lives that bear no fruit in keeping with repentance. And what do we say about their faith? Well, I think we say about their faith what John says about their faith. They went out from us because perhaps maybe they really weren't ever really a part of us. We've got to to remember that we aren't exempt from that. We're not exempt from that. We're not exempt from being carried away by false teaching, being led away. Okay, so we've seen these marks of uh, those who have false faith, but what about the marks of those who have true faith? This is our second point. These are, the, these are the ones primarily to whom John is writing, the ones with whom he is concerned. So point two, the marks of those with true faith. They are anointed, they believe, and they abide. They're anointed, they believe, and they abide. Look down at verse 20. Verse 20, John begins to lay out this contrast between these anti-Christians and the true Christians. And the first and the most radical difference between the two is that the true believers have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. If you're, living, if you're using a New Living translation this morning, I don't know if you, any of you are using that particular translation. There's a little bit of a translation issue here. Your translation says, "...but you are not like that, for the Holy One has given you His Spirit." So the implication in that translation is that God the Father is the Holy One And he's referencing here uh, God the Father sending His Spirit. Now, there's not necessarily anything heretical about that, but I don't think that's right. I think every other translation and what the Greek text itself says is that Holy One here is a reference to the Holy Spirit Himself. You have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of Holy Spirit anointing is also very misunderstood today. And I want to be careful to be very clear about what we mean and what John means by this. So most people, when they hear and they think about Holy Spirit anointing, they think about some special portion of power or presence in that Christian's life. And so you might say that there is a particular preacher that is really anointed by the Holy Spirit. And what you mean when you say that is they are a very passionate preacher that preaches with a lot of power and with a lot of enthusiasm. We may say that this is an anointed service. And what we typically mean by that is that the presence of God was particularly felt. right? So we, we tend to think of anointing uh, of the Holy Spirit as power and presence. Power and presence. But in the Scripture, when, when John here and when, when other New Testament writers are talking about anointing, it means that they're being set apart. Not that they're given some special portion of power or presence, but they're being set apart by God for a specific purpose. So you think of the prophet Nathan. When he anoints David as king. He pours oil on David's head. And he anoints him. And he sets him apart. And says this is the one. whom God has chosen. To be king over his people. So in the New Testament. And I think in the rest of scripture as well. When we think about anointing. And when we talk about Holy Spirit. Anointing in particular what we're actually talking about is God's choosing, God's choosing and setting apart of individuals for His particular purposes. It's not any type of some spectacular power or presence of the Lord, but it has to do with God's choosing and His setting apart of people for particular purposes. Now, look down um, right in verse 20 again, and we'll see what this leads to. What this anointing leads to is it leads us to truth. So verse 20 says, But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and not, now you have special power or presence, but now you have all knowledge. So typically, again, when we think of anointing by the Holy Spirit, we think of some kind of uh, you know, um, big display of God's power or some kind of an emotional display of God's power or presence. But here, John says that Holy Spirit anointing doesn't lead to those things, it leads to knowledge. It leads to all knowledge. So this anointing by the Holy Spirit has revealed truth to us, the truth of the Gospel. It's opened our blind eyes and it's revived our dead hearts to believe it. So anointing then here points us back to Jeremiah 31 in this promise of the New Covenant that God's going to write His law in the people's hearts, that they're going to have no need for teachers because they're going to know Him from the least to the greatest. But they're going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit in the truth of the Gospel. So what does this Holy Spirit anointing us to knowledge lead us to? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. All right? True and genuine Spirit anointed Christians believe in Jesus. They believe in Jesus. So they're anointed and they believe. Now again, this is in stark contrast with these Antichrists that we've already talked about. Whereas the Antichrists deny that Jesus is the Messiah, those who are anointed by the Holy Spirit who are anointed unto truth and have all knowledge, they believe that Jesus is the Christ. Look down at verse 23 again. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This anointing by the Holy Spirit is the means by which we are able to confess faith in Jesus. We didn't just wake up this morning and decide, you know what, I think today I'll follow Jesus. Why not? It's not just something that you come up with on your own. It's certainly not something that you earn by your own works. It's certainly not something that you can, tr- can contrive out of your own power. This is God's doing in your hearts. Brothers and sisters, your faith in Jesus, your belief in Jesus is a gift to you from God. It's a gift to you from God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, rotting out the, the, the application of Jesus' work on your behalf, in your heart making you more and more like Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21-22. through 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So your belief in Jesus, it's of God's doing. Your faith in Jesus is of God's doing. And it's the outcome of this God-given, Spirit-anointed belief. And what's the result of that? The result of it, he says down in verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So the result of your anointing and the result of your faith, of your belief, is eternal life. So true believers, they're, uh, they are anointed, they have belief, and then finally they abide. They abide in the truth of the gospel. Now we see this a couple of times. Look down at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Again, this message of the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for our salvation. That's what we heard from the beginning. Let that message abide in you. He says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the father. Now look down at verse 27, the last part of verse 27. But his as his anointing teaches you about everything and this anointing, it's true and it and it is no lie, just as it was taught you, not any different, but just like it was taught to you, so abide in him. So the command, this exhortation is to abide. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you might be amazed at how common this exhortation is there. I would challenge you guys. I did this one time. I set apart a week. And in one week, I read the entire New Testament from Matthew all the way through Revelation. It's not as hard as you might think. Uh, you waste a lot of time doing other stuff that you could probably better use your time. You know? Make the time to do it sometime. Maybe you can't do it in a week, maybe in a month. Set aside a time to, to read very quickly, just you know, front to back the entire New Testament. And you will be surprised, maybe you won't be surprised, but but be surprised at how often this exhortation, how common this exhortation is in the New Testament to persevere, to abide, to hold fast, to endure. It is a very, very common uh, exhortation throughout the, the whole New Testament. This we know is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Again, this is in stark contrast to the Antichrist above. Right? <clears throat> they did not abide. They departed. They didn't press on in the truth of the Gospel. They left the Gospel. They left the truth. They denied the truth. And they left the congregation. They departed from the congregation. But here, the encouragement is to abide. To abide in the truth and to abide in the fellowship of God's people to continue in it, to live in it. One commentator I read said this. Endurance in the faith is the hallmark of the saved. It is not enough to say that we once believed, once believed in in time past. It is necessary that we continue to believe. So, brothers and sisters, it is not enough merely to have heard and assented intellectually to the message of the gospel at some point in time in the past. The message of the gospel must continue to be present and active in our lives every single day. And there are plenty of folks who walk an aisle and sign a card and even go through baptismal waters And maybe even for a time, they live out that faith in the context of the local church, but then they depart, and their faith is made shipwrecked. John says here that these people went out from us because they were never truly a part of us. If a person does not abide in Christ, that is a sure sign that they were never anointed and they never truly believed. Well, I want to close this morning by giving us a few practical things to think about in light of all these things. Okay? Three really quick bullet point things. One, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Every day we need to remind ourselves constantly of what it is that we have believed from the beginning. Don't be led away by the desire for some new, fresh word from God. We have a word to describe what a new, fresh teaching from God is. You know what it is? Heresy. We don't need a new, fresh teaching from God. We need to be reminded of the truth of the Gospel and continue to persevere and to live in it. I need the Gospel as much today as I needed it over 20 years ago when I first became a Christian. Some of you guys have been Christians for longer than I've been alive. And you need the gospel just as much today as you needed it 50, 60, 70 years ago or however long it is that you've been walking with the Lord. You never grow out of your need for the gospel. You only grow deeper in your need for it. So remind yourself of the gospel every day. Secondly, don't give up on the local church. Don't give up on the local church. We need community. We need the community of faith to hold us, to help us stay true to the truth of the gospel. We need one another to help each other persevere, to hold each other accountable to the things that we confess. The Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. It can't be done. You need the church. I need the church to hold me accountable to the profession of faith that I have made. And we As a church, we need to be serious about holding one another accountable to our professions of faith. That's what sets us apart from a golf club or a country club or some other club that you have membership in that you pay dues to. You need this fellowship to persevere in your faith. Finally, maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, you've never trusted in Him. And you hear this promise of eternal life and you hear this promise of having your sins forgiven and you think that sounds really good. Well, friend, if that's you this morning, it's true. (laughs) It is really good. And it's all true. Jesus lived a perfect life that you can never live. And He died on the cross to take the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins. And He rose from the dead, defeating sin and defeating death. And the Scripture says that if you would just turn away from your sins and put your trust in Jesus and live for Him, then He will save you. Then that promise of eternal life will come to you. So brothers and sisters, friends, if if you're here this morning and you've never turned and you've never put your faith in Christ, He's never written that good law upon your heart. Know Him. He's revealed Himself to you in His Son, Jesus. Put your trust in Him. Have faith in Him and He will save you from your sins. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this Word. I thank You for this warning that comes from uh, the Apostle John. Lord, I pray that we would be discerning. Father, that we would... Um, that we would be careful to guard our teaching. Father, we would be careful to guard each other in each other's confession, Father, that we would help one another to persevere in the faith. Lord, that we would help one another repent of sin, that we would remind each other of the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us. Father, I pray that if there are those here this morning who have never put their faith in You, Father, I pray that You would open their eyes. Lord, anoint them with Your Spirit Open their eyes, open their hearts, help them to see their need for You. And Father, give them faith. And I pray that this morning even, they would return, they would turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus and that they would live for Him. Father, I pray these things for our good, but most of all for the glory of Your Son, Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.